make this feeling last forever I know I wouldn't mind But for now let's sit and soak up sunny weather Welcome back, everybody. We're back in the Hatch Family Chocolates basement. How are you today, Steve? The dungeon. The dungeon. <laughs> the Hatch pit. Family Chocolates. But it smells better than some dungeons. That's true. I've been in quite a few dungeons. It could be a lot worse. I'm doing good. Good to hear. Are you excited for the holiday weekend? Oh, st- yeah. dude, I'm self-employed. Like, holiday weekends don't really mean anything. They don't really exist. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Well, I'm I'm getting out of town for Pie and Beer Day. What? Oh, you are? Where are you going? Going up to the family cabin. Nice. Uh, near Camus, which is near Oakley, which is the hometown of our guest. See what I did there? That was actually, <laughs> that was actually a pretty smooth transition. Thank you. I have a family cabin up near Oakley. Wait, you're really from Oakley? Okay, who, who, who the hell are we talking to? It's my second cousin. Our grandmas were sisters. Um, and were their grandson. You say that so, like pausing, like maybe they were not sure they were re- related. I, I'm pretty they were sure actually half sisters, half sisters, uh, by blood anyway. Yeah, they shared a mother. Mother. I, I thought father for a second, but the last names are different. Yep, uh, my grandma was uh, Stewart, and yours was uh, Farnsworth. Farnsworth. And I posted on my Facebook yesterday about Philo T. Farnsworth, which I'm somehow related to in there. Is he the TV one? The TV, the TV guy. guy. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Seems like I remember my grandma talking about we were related to him somehow. So it's legit? So it's a legit story? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Family. Uh, TV's here because of my family. So. <laughs> Wait, so who's our guest? I mean, so we know, so we know, like, some Philo Farnsworth dude, like, supposedly invented TV because he was bored, because he was a Mormon or something. He was bored. There was nothing better to do. And he's like, I am, like, gonna, like, this is my personal hell. So he had to create a TV. Is this your relative had to invent the TV? Yeah. Because yep. he was bored. I'm sure it's more complicated than that, but, uh, doesn't diminish the importance, so. <laughs> My second cousin, Maybe I Kendrick the Zane. Real story. <laughs> <laughs> uh, see, I'm not good at opening a podcast. I do okay once we get going, but I'm just not good at opening it. No, I thought you did pretty good. You, you did pretty good there. Well, thank you. More about Kendrick is he is a musician, um, mostly a piano player. Do you play any in- other instruments? Uh, I do. I <clears throat> I tinker on a lot of different things, but um, piano is definitely the one I'm most accomplished at. I I do play guitar and and bass uh, as well. But uh, how many bands are you in? Bands? Currently? Yeah. Well, how many bands are you currently in? I've got a, f- a few different guys that I play with on a regular basis. I I do for for corporate shows. I do a lot of dueling pianos, so it's just me and another piano player, uh, similar to what you'd see in a piano bar, right? But kind of tailored for the corporate environment. But um, and then I've got uh, a band that I I I've got a drummer that I work with and a bass player and a guitar player and a saxophone player and uh, 
in that show, as you can imagine, is of a different nature. But uh, wait, so do you remember when you first wanted to learn how to play the piano? How old were you? Oh, I was probably I was a kid. I know, uh, probably five or five or so, four or five, when I decided that I really wanted to play the piano. I'd listen to Liberace records that my dad had, and and uh, we got a piano when I was about four or five from my grandparents, and so my dad and mom both played, and so I grew up listening to them in the house too, and so. So it wasn't those situations where the parents makes the kid take piano. No, I was I was very eager to take piano lessons when it when I started. What sure. was your first song that you learned, <laughs> <laughs> or do you remember? <laughs> uh, so I should have brought my keyboard. We could have I could have played it for you, but maybe next time. Um, it was just a really simple version of "Mary Had a Little Lamb" when I was like I don't know four or five maybe when um, I played all on the black keys the three black keys you know wow yeah my first song that i learned and only song that i learned how to play on the piano was just a few notes from bewitched that tv show it is was that like, the one that's like da, 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 da. is that the one no it was like oh crap yeah, I think it kind of was. Well, no, that's, or that's, like, I, I, like, that's I, I Dream of Genie. I Dream, oh, I get the two. It's like, dun 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 Oh, yeah. That one? Yeah, but I don't even know what keys I was playing. <laughs> they, and, you know, I couldn't close. do it anymore. <laughs> but, yeah, so that was the first and only song I learned. I never played piano. I played violin, and Twinkle Twinkle was my first song. Nice. So when you started playing it at five, when did you want to start playing in, uh, you know, in front of you know, larger groups? And So I was telling you I would listen to my dad's Liberace records. Well, he also had this other record that uh, was a live album by a guy named Roy Clark. Are you familiar with Roy Clark? Yes, I watched a lot of Yeehaw growing up. Exactly. <laughs> uh, Nashville guy play the hell out of the banjo, guitar, mandolin, fiddle, pretty much any any of those classic instruments. Um, but there was this live album of his that my dad had, and I'd, I, it was my favorite album to listen to, and you could hear him interacting with the audience, and you could hear how much fun the audience was having, and you could hear his jokes and banders with the audience, and uh, it just sounded like so much fun to be on stage and... Uh, playing in that way with with it and uh so i think that's what first captured my imagination about you know being a musician and playing in front of an audience probably and did that inspire your your love for the crowd work well or it planted the seed yeah planted the seed i mean yeah <laughs> it planted the seed i i was terrible at it for a long, long time, I was really shy in front of the audience, and I was afraid to look at the audience, and I was um, just shy about engaging such a mass of people all at once. Um, but, you know, flash forward a number of years, I started playing in the piano bars, and if there's one thing that playing in a piano bar does is it teaches you how to engage with the crowd, because they're there to 
have a good time and it's your job to keep their butts in the seats uh, to keep them drinking you know yeah um, and I, so i was able to develop that part of my rep my skill set basically I, I spent a couple uh, new years at keys on main ah. seeing you and was it you both times i know it was at least one of them it was you i know that i remember seeing you at new year's eve at least twice then both times and with your <laughs> with, with your dad and and i think your brother was there too my stepmom and yeah yeah your stepmom yeah i, I don't remember the second half of the evening <laughs> well <laughs> i don't think any of us do <laughs> i got pretty hammered myself uh time or two <laughs> Okay, but Dylan, you just said you were raised in Oakley? Correct. So, oh, okay, for people that don't know, Oakley is like a small town in Utah. Yeah. How would you describe Oakley? Uh, when I was growing up, it was really idyllic. It was uh, just a quiet, quiet little farm town that's got a river running through it and mountains all around it, and... Everybody knows everybody, and, you know, you just, I guess we were kind of feral growing up. Uh, we had the luxury of, of that. You know, we could just jump on our bikes and run all over and, you know, float down the river on a tube or um, whatever. It was, it was fun. So Kathy and Ed Sorensen. I know them. And their, their son, Shad. Shad's like kind of an asshole, isn't he? <laughs> I don't know him that well. I can't speak to, to that. I've learned an asshole. He's actually like the most friendly person I know. <laughs> so when he listens to this, he'll just be like, what? what? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I know those guys for sure. Great people. That, but So growing up there, did that influence you even? I imagine it's a very cowboy city. It's, did playing music, did you get picked on because you were the piano player um, up? Do we need to go after Harley or any of those guys <laughs> that lived up there? <laughs> uh, for the most part, uh, I didn't have to worry too much about that kind of thing. Um, I was always able to, I don't know, get along with my peers in other ways so that it didn't necessarily fall on you know what I did to be included but there were plenty of times when I definitely thought it would be much better for my social standing if I was you know into sports instead but or the rodeos uh, or the ro yeah. yeah apparently the rodeo is huge well I come from uh, uh, my dad's family is all you know cowboys uh, ranchers you know and and so I was definitely exposed to that and uh, my uncle gave me a lot of, a lot of guff for not being more of a cowboy type person. That's for sure. You're your own character. That's good. Yeah. Uh, but it sounds like a country also did influence you at a younger age. Like you talked about listening to Hee Haw, and mm. and then like just that interaction for your music. Did it impact you? Do you think? Whoa, 100%. Um, and I, the, the older I get, the more I realize how much that is embedded in me. Um, I really, really enjoy playing those old country songs. There's something just so pure about them. Um, uh, you know, Ray Charles also used to talk about how much he loved country music for its stories. And, and 
I can totally see that, you know. Um, you listen to these old country songs and you can really, like, it really paints vivid, explicit pictures in your head about what's going on. And there's something, I think, just really charming about that, about country, you know. At least country pre-1992, 93 or so. Everything up to and including After that, Garth did Brooks. it go to hell? Before it oh, turned? Gotcha. <laughs> it started turning in the 90s, and, and now it's almost indistinguishable from hip-hop, culturally, anyway. You know, it's all about, look at me and my big old truck, and, and all that stuff now. Yeah, it's lost its... Country has lost its way, I think. There's occasionally good country, but it's usually mixed with kind of another genre, or it's, it's with an older artist, like, um, who's the band... Where they did the song with Jimmy Buffett. Um, anyway, mm. I do like sure. Zach Brown Band. I, I, yeah, I think that's who it was. Yeah, yeah. yeah so that, there's good stuff out there, but most of it's probably not super top mainstream anymore. Who are some of your favorite older country artists, like Johnny Cash kind of era? Oh uh, well, I do love Johnny Cash. Um, I already mentioned Roy Clark. Um, I like uh, Roger Miller a lot. I like Chris Christopherson, um, Willie Nelson. Uh, you know, kind of the the outlaw country crowd from the '70s and '80s, um, that kind of stuff. And then I was super, super into Garth Brooks from about the age of eight till I was ten or eleven. Did you go to the show? I did. Last. How yeah. was it? It was amazing. Uh, talk about performers. That dude knows how to, how to put on a show, that's for sure. Awesome. Yeah, yeah it looked like a fun show. Well, and, you know, the thing about him is if you see how many years he's been around, like, that's incredible to still be significant and to still, you know, have a say in the community and social causes. Yeah, and such a huge... I mean, he's selling out stadiums still, you know? Um, that's... I think discovering Garth Brooks kind of furthered what was already seated in me with the uh, Roy Clark thing, you know? Uh, Garth is also just a great entertainer and, and knows how to just hook people in their seats and leave them wanting more and... Uh, it's something that I'm always trying to emulate when I'm in front of a crowd, you know? Well, people even want to find you. How, where do they find you right now? Well, um, they can find me on YouTube. That's where probably most of my content is right now. Um, I've got a YouTube channel that's got quite a few performances on there from live shows or studio performances. Um, and I'm building my presence on other social media platforms as well. That's it's always been the part of the business that I've found most difficult is engaging in a uh, in a digital environment you know where there's not real people that you're interacting with you know um, speaking of that on your YouTube channel um, there's uh, there's videos from your COVID shows that you do would would do like uh, and you had a Billy Joel uh, were there other ones besides the, the Billy Joel shows? Yeah, so when COVID went down last year, um, 
I started off just doing a single all request live stream where people would comment on the requests that they wanted to hear in the in the live feed as I was playing and it turned out to be uh, pretty successful so I started doing it every week uh, which is kind of an all request format so I was doing all kinds of stuff from old jazz standards to old country to modern rock uh, kind of all over the board and then I felt like I needed to kind of do something that was a little more uh, I don't know stimulating I guess for for my own creativity and growth and so I decided to tackle a project where I performed uh, every single Billy Joel album start to finish uh, which is a catalog of about 110 songs, maybe. Um, wow. And I did that in the matter of, I don't know, I, I did one a week, uh, starting last, I think June was the first one we did. And then I ended up doing the last one in December. Wow. So, so was it that whole week just learning the songs that you didn't know before? I already kind of knew them just from hearing them yeah. so many times. But yeah, I really... So my routine was I would, uh, I would take Sundays off, and then I would Monday I would start charting the songs, uh, so that I um, ha basically I was just compiling a cheat sheet of the songs so that I didn't have to flip pages and read a whole bunch. I just, basically just sheets that have the the lyrics and the chords on them uh, with the different. The, with the song structure so I could give it to my drummer that I was working with so that he could know where we were in the, in the song. So I'd spent all week uh, charting the songs and then we would rehearse maybe once or twice before the show and then we'd do the show on Saturday night. Which Billy Joel album is the best? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> that one is, uh, is a tough, tough one. Yeah, tough questions. Uh I think most people would probably agree that his best album is The Stranger. Uh, 1977 release. It's got like six, six or seven of the nine songs were in the top 40. Um, like Just the Way You Are, Moving Out, Only the Good Die Young, Scenes from Italian Restaurant, Vienna. Um, I mean, The Stranger, the title track. Uh, just an amazing album. But probably my sentimental favorite is Street Life Serenade. It's it's a it's probably his least well known album from nineteen seventy four, I think it came out. And it was my first Billy Joel album that I that I got because I was when I was I think twelve, my piano teacher had me learn a song off of the album and so she bought me the album so I could listen to it. And that was what made me a Billy Joel fan was listening to that album. So I got, got it tattooed on my arm here. You oh, can see awesome. that's the album cover. Nice. It. Yeah, it turned out pretty good. Very cool. How, okay, we, you brushed on COVID. How has COVID changed your industry? And do you, where do you see it going in the future? Or what impact long-term do you think it had? That's an interesting question. Um, I think... 
for starters, it, it, it's had a similar impact that it's had on a lot of other industries where it kind of decentralized things a little bit. Like, so for example, people are realizing that they don't necessarily need to go into the office every day. They can, they can do it from their home. And I think that kind of similarly, a lot of musicians have, have realized that their own destiny is kind of in their own hands. They don't need to, to wait for some record deal to, you know, do things. They can just start doing them. And, you know, you can have a super simple setup or as elaborate of one as you, you want or whatever. But uh, I think... Yeah, it's just proven that the you know the power is ours really if we choose to move forward. You know, there's there's nothing there's nothing externally stopping anyone from creating anything. You know, other than your own internal whatever. And I think COVID kind of helped bring that curtain down for a lot of people. At least it did me. That's for sure. Did you find during that that you had? Um amazing periods of uh, good creativity, like developing, you know, new music or, you know, figuring mm. out new ways to, you know, to piece things together? Yeah, absolutely. So last year was a tough year for me as it was for, I think, everybody. Um, and that stuff piles up. And as a songwriter, I find the, the, the act of writing a writing a piece of music um, to be really cathartic, you know, for my psyche. And so if I ignore that part for too long, it, it builds up and I start feeling anxious and tense and irritable and whatever other shit has been piling up. Um, and so last year, at about this time, last year, was really starting to hit me and I knew that I needed to do something about it so I I drove down to Sedona and just rented a little cottage just by myself and I brought my keyboard down and and a little recording set up and um, with the explicit purpose of just holding myself up to see what comes out and it ended up being really cathartic in that sense uh the seeds to probably a dozen different songs were born and now the, the problem is you know following through and like you know watering the seeds and and making sure that the soil is just right so that it grows into uh, what they're supposed to become but um i think times of difficulty can absolutely spark moments of creativity it's like a compensative uh, feature of the human psyche, I guess. I don't know. No, and I liked what you said that, you know, everybody had to reinvent how they did things. And um, a lot of it was just, if you want it, you can do it. But, um, instead of waiting for somebody to do it for you or to help you, you just do it. Yeah, there's, there's really nothing stopping you except your own self. Can't stop me now. <laughs> it's don't stop me now. Nice try. Can't, don't. <laughs> Semantics. Are, my son's the big queen fan in our house. I, uh, I love queen. Yeah, good, good stuff. 
uh, collaborators. Um, you've played with um, my friend Christy mm -hmm. and her her friend. Um, what's his name? Tom. Tom. Tom Hopkins. What's yeah. Uh, Tom is one of Utah's best musicians and producers, and um, uh, he's played guitar for a lot of a lot of things that you have heard that you probably don't even realize that you've heard. Um, and so he's the he helped me produce my first EP, which I still need to release. Uh, this is going to give me a kick in the in the butt to actually. When will we release this? It's on tape. <laughs> yeah, let's put you I'm on committing tape. myself to this now. I'm going to try and have it up on Spotify uh, by the 1st of September. Okay. Um, along with some, some live performances uh, to create this kind of EP, and that's going to kind of be my first official release. Nice. Yeah. We're holding him to it. Yep. That'll be yeah. all, religion, all original songs. So. From the Sedona visit? Uh, about half of them, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah, they ended up being really kind of trippy songs because Sedona has this cool light ordinance where, uh, you know, they can't light up the city too much at night. So you can be in the middle of the city and still see really bright stars. So I just go and lay out in my... I had this little cottage and I just go and throw a blanket out on the on the pavement on the driveway and just stare up at the stars and think about the universe so the songs are like really kind of out there but that's cool <laughs> the, the, you could do that in oakley i mean oakley has some pretty good stars right totally yeah i guess one could but i guess there's aliens down in sedona too so i added the alien thing into the mix you know so. but there's bigfoot in oakley i'm I, wait You've know. seen Bigfoot in Oak? <laughs> Did you see Bigfoot growing up? No, but I saw a black bear. That's the closest that I... To a Bigfoot. To a Bigfoot. And it ran right across the trail as I was coming down. It was pretty cool. Do you know people from your high school or neighborhood that did see Bigfoot? No. That's totally a Bigfoot home in that area. I'm yeah, I think, I, think, I think they probably live in a little bit more... Um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking Bigfoot is more of like a Alaska thing, you know, the frontier. They're Further still north, Steve. Yeah. No, I'm they, just they, saying they, they're, they're going to they're going to live beyond the the front, the wilderness frontier somewhere in Alaska, probably to hide from pretty us. sure I saw one at my cabin once. I think that was Dylan. <laughs> it might have been. It may, it may have been. Steve. It may have been Dylan. <laughs> I do get pretty, pretty bushy in the face. <laughs> Yeah, oh my gosh. You're just trying to start a conspiracy so you have a new project to play with. I don't do that, Dylan. I no. like I'm pretty <laughs> But I it really might have been Bigfoot, I don't know. I thought I wasn't there. And I haven't seen anything when I've been up there. You believe in what you want to believe in. I guess. Well, I'm a little mm -hmm. disappointed that you don't because, like, I mean, <laughs> just honestly, like, I just think that, like, okay, where you grew up is some of the most beautiful country in the world, and I really love it. And I love, like, the Weber River, and I love, like, going up to Smith and Morehouse, all yeah. that area. Yeah, it's nice up there. I do love it. It was really cool when I was a kid. It, they, it was a little smaller than it is now, Smith and Morehouse, and I liked it because... 
I mean, you could just float a raft as a kid, and there was a little island out in the middle of it. We'd camp out overnight. That's probably where I saw the Bigfoot. I mean, I was only 10. So, you know, there's a lot of scary things there at night. Your imagination can can play tricks on you, you know? It might have been a cow. It could have been a cow in a field. Oh, my gosh. It was probably a snipe, you know? Oh, it could have been. A snipe. Yeah, those damn snipes. They can... <laughs> They can shapeshift and to look like anything, even Bigfoot. So, it well, it could have been then. Yeah, it, it mm. was probably that. Yeah. Uh, the reason I brought up Tom is I saw a picture of you guys at Abbey Studios. Yeah. Oh, Abbey Road, yeah. Yeah, I'm you know a big Beatles fan. I named my business and my son after John. Nice. What What was it like being being there? And did you record there? Uh huh. Uh. So what what I did there, that's going to be part of the EP that I've committed to being released on September 1st. Um, Make sure you look dead in the camera <laughs> when you say it. Yeah, it's yes. totally documented. Yeah, I'm committed now. So, um, yeah, we went over and we flew, flew to London and I flew over with a few other uh, piano players, singers, uh, and we kind of shared uh, shared the studio time. We rented out the studio for two days, and we just kind of split up the time between us. And so I had a finite amount of time, um, and my goal was to to write and record a couple new songs at least. And so we flew over to London. We got an Airbnb, and then we went and rented a bunch of equipment. So I rented a keyboard and a PA system. And then Tom brought his guitars. And we just kind of set up a little rehearsal studio in the living room of the Airbnb. And I wrote two songs while I was there in London. And we ended up recording them at Abbey Road the next day. Um, and so you asked what it was like being there. It was definitely like a, a pilgrimage. Um, we, you know, you walk in and, and they have all of the old equipment from the 60s that the Beatles used lined up as kind of like this museum as you walk down the hallway. Um, but then the studio itself, so Abbey Road has three studios within the studio. Um, a, B, and C, and it was Studio B that um, we were in, and that's the one that the Beatles did all their stuff in. Studio C, um, which is just down the hallway from Studio B, is where like Pink Floyd did all their stuff, and Dark Side of the Moon was recorded there. And then Studio A is the, the big uh, um, symphony space where they record soundtracks to like all the Star Wars movies and all that stuff. Um, uh, and so you walk into Studio B and the floors are exactly the same as you see in the pictures of the Beatles in the studio. The sound treatment is the exact same sound treatment. The room is essentially the same as when the Beatles recorded there. The only difference is the upgraded you know, equipment that they use. Um, but man, it was a trip. Just, you know, in between takes, I'd like tinker around with Beatles songs and I'd be like, oh, this isn't the first time this has reverberated along these walls. It's kind of cool. Yeah. 
Yeah, when I go to historic places and I just kind of sit and take it in. So I, I was wondering what it was like there. Um, yeah, it was it was almost a spiritual experience in a way. It was it was really cool. Did you do the Abbey Road walk? Of course, of course. yeah, of course. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what happened to them. Somebody's got them on their phone somewhere, but uh, <laughs> of course we did that. Awesome. Yeah. Um, do you have a aside from there? Do you have a favorite favorite place to record or people to record with? Um. Well, I always love recording with Tom. Uh, we've spent a lot of hours working together, and and you know having a a synergy and enjoying their company is important in that process. You know, you have to like to hang out with them in addition to you know jiving well musically or whatever. Um. Uh, but I spent a lot of time uh, playing with uh, Bobby James, a drummer here locally. We did, he's the one that did the Billy Joel project with me. So uh, we played like three or four nights a week for most of last year. Um, and so the same thing, great hang. We, we hang out and jive really well together and I just enjoy playing with them. So. Let's talk about uh, Keys on Main because that's where I first experienced the, your your talents and stuff like that. How 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 did you? Um, can I phrase this? How did that get started, and did it help you expand your covers library? Um, mm. I, I assume it would, but just like how how did it influence your you know doing covers? Uh, well, so working in the piano bar um, influenced a lot more than just my repertoire, which it did. Um, it, it, it's kind of... Bars in, in and of themselves are a really interesting study in human behavior. <laughs> <laughs> you see all people from all walks of life in these places. Um, and... So up until I started doing the piano bar thing, uh, my musical world was all about the performance itself, the quality of the musicianship and, you know, the accuracy and emotion with which you're playing or whatever. And instead, when you, so then I, you get into the piano bar and then the shift changes and it becomes less about the quality of the performance and it becomes more about the entertaining aspects of, of what you're doing, whether or not the people in the room are enjoying themselves. And so what that did to my repertoire, <laughs> <laughs> it, um, you know, having that shift in focus, uh, it became all of a sudden satisfactory for me to be able to half-ass my way through a song. Whereas prior to that, that's not something that I would have ever felt comfortable doing in front of an audience is like totally butchering or at least half butchering a song. And then the piano bar becomes almost commonplace. If you go to a piano bar and listen to the, the performance, the way that they play the songs is not necessarily going to be super accurate. Um, but it doesn't necessarily need to be in that setting. All it needs to be is close enough that the people recognize it and can sing along, you know? And, and get excited about it. Yeah. And so 
just living in that performance environment for so long, um, it was almost like I was neglecting one part of it and instead focusing on the other. And so now what I'm doing is working on reintegrating the two, you know? Do you think there's, Um, you kind of said it, but like, do you think there's one that's more important than the other? Like the skill versus the performer or do you like, can somebody be successful without both? Of course. Uh, uh, In fact, most people are one or the other. Um, uh, there are many, many very, very high-level, successful top musicians that that aren't necessarily good in front of an audience, but they are just so good that they've been able to establish their entire career based on just that, um, the quality of their performance. And then there are, like, the guys that uh, work in the piano bars are a great example of this. Um, uh, a lot of those guys maybe aren't the best technically at piano playing or they may not be the most, they, they might not have a Broadway voice, but they're good enough with interacting and entertaining and drawing people in that it kind of compensates. And so um, they're kind of more on the other side of it. Um, but then you have guys like Billy Joel, for example, that are both. Billy Joel is a, a, a really high quality, he knows how to play the piano, he knows how to write, he knows how to do all of that, but then uh, here's another guy that's still selling out baseball stadiums and he hasn't released a new album since 1993, you know what I mean? So having both, you know, is what's given Billy Joel his longevity. The songs are solid, the recordings are solid, the performance is solid, but then he's still able to draw in and entertain vast amounts of people. That time at the piano bars, is there a song or songs that you never want to play again just because it's a band memory or it's just, you know, not not something you love? <laughs> um, I don't know that there's any song that I would prohibit myself from playing again under the right or was there a request that made you cringe? There are plenty of requests <laughs> that make me cringe. Uh, I have a hard time uh, with certain types of songs, you know, like, for example, one song that I really can't stand playing would be like Red Solo Cup by Toby Keith. It's just really simple, and there's not much to the song structure, and the song is just about getting drunk and and yet it was a crowd favorite and so every time I saw that I you know kind of died a little bit inside for example but you play it anyway and they give you 20 bucks and you're like I will no longer play any Toby <laughs> Keith songs if that's what you're putting down just leave right now well get, walk out see but I do like should have been a cowboy by Toby Keith I, I still like playing that song okay. should have been a cowboy that one you know but that has a lot more flavor to it than Red Solo Cup. Yeah, I it's think, yeah, yeah it's, it's there's just more going on there to it for sure. Um, go ahead. I was no, I think we should do the bonus. Oh no! But, so you you have questions? Beehive cigars. I want to talk about that. Let's talk about it. He's oh yeah you. 
What? Do you own that? I do, yeah. Flat out 100% you? 100%. What got you into that? Yeah. And how did your family <laughs> react when I'm opening a cigar store? So, so going back to Keys on Main, um, I was... I was doing that, and I was working like four nights a week, and I was making enough money to live just fine, and that amounted to about you know twelve to fourteen hours a week total. So I had all this time and during the day that was available to me to to do whatever, and you know after a year or two of just doing whatever I wanted during the day, I decided to be a little bit more productive with my time. And so I started looking for something to do. I I started saving a little bit of money. I just had just a little bit of money and I was wanting to do something with it. So I went to a business broker just to see what existing businesses were for sale. And the only one that I could afford (laughs) in their portfolio (laughs) was this little cigar shop down in Sandy called Hungry Trout Cigars. And I'd smoked like two cigars in my life at that point. But I was like, I don't want to just go get a nine to five job. Uh, I have a good opportunity here to to do something. So let's experiment. And so I just bought this cigar shop without having any experience with cigars at all. (laughs) Um, Signed the papers, went down to Barnes & Noble, bought cigars for the complete idiot, read it. And then just jumped in, and uh, turns out that it's a really cool industry. <laughs> yeah, it seems really cool. Yeah, it's fun. It's it's a definitely a, a people business. You know, smoking a cigar is just a good excuse for guys to sit down and have a conversation about stuff. You know, um, it's it's just a reminder to slow down and chill you know do you think we lack that nowadays 100 percent. yeah um i don't know anywhere else but a cigar shop where where republicans and democrats can sit down in the same room and have a civil conversation for example i think that's pretty rare these days um but i see it every day so wow yeah if you if a place can bring people together like that that's that's amazing um, how long have you owned it then? yeah so that was almost 12 years ago so I bought that little cigar shop in Sandy a year later I rebranded the company as Beehive Cigars and then a year after that I moved from Sandy to Salt Lake on 3rd West 3rd West uh, 15 South that's near the the target there and yeah it's like in between the target and the costco uh right across from the big wine store the state wine store there on third west okay i, um, I think the axe throwing place is fairly close there's got to be a, a couple axe throwing places <laughs> down there i would think it's in the middle of this big industrial area um so and if people want to find you can they order online also for utah beehive or beehive yeah. cigars, whatever. Uh, yeah, we 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 will ship to customers. Yeah, no problem. Um, the website does have 
uh, an ordering thing and what what happens is the order gets sent to us and then we'll call and verify the order and then ship it out to them uh, so yeah during covid was did did a lot of people come in um, I mean, so our uh, COVID that, protocol that business, yeah. was kind of interesting. We we stopped letting customers in the store, um, and the reason for that is the, the cigars are kept in this um, climate-controlled room that has higher humidity, um, so there can't be a lot of air circulation in that room. Uh, and so we stopped letting customers in, and we just set up a booth at the door, and the customers rolled up and told us what they wanted, and we went and pulled it for them and just did it, all the transactions at the door without anybody look, coming in the store. And that's when we got the online shopping cart going so people could just place the order online and then just swing by and pick it up. And I was going to ask, I mean, just the weather, like you touched on it. Does Utah make it hard to have a cigar shop because of the dry no, having a cigar shop itself that doesn't really pose an issue because anywhere you go, it's going to be the same thing where the room itself is climate controlled um, with humidity. But it does create a problem uh, for the end consumer if they want to store the cigars at home. What would be like the average lifespan? Well, a cigar, as long as it's kept properly, will stay perfectly smokable for years and years. And there's no real expiration date just depends on the tobacco. Uh, it's like a wine, you know, like it's going to peak at a certain age and then start diminishing after that. Tobacco's the same way. Tob certain tobaccos will peak at about five to six years and then start tapering down. And some keep getting good until they're, you know, a decade or more old. So, um, but yeah, the, the dry air makes it hard for guys to store cigars at home. But other than that, not an issue. For somebody that's getting started to smoke cigars, what's kind of like an average, average price? You know, a good brand to start with. Um, so Utah prices are a little bit skewed because we have high tobacco tax here. Um, but just going off of, you know, industry averages, um, you can get a really good cigar for in the eight to $13 range. That's kind of the sweet spot. But that being said, there are some really great offerings at $5 or, or so. Anything less than 4 and you're getting into really iffy territory. Um, and then anything over 20 25 you're probably getting diminishing returns on your dollar after that, too. So, um, so no sw Swisher Sweets? <laughs> <laughs> Don't no. insult me, man. No. <laughs> I was making a joke. Well, Aaron, if you went over trips, I'd tried them, and everybody's making fun of me. Those stink. Cheapskate. Well, Carl Malone even has like a cigar brand now. Yep. Um, Legends or something, or I can't remember what the name of it. Yeah, it's just called, called the Carl Malone. the The band on the cigar has a little basketball. Uh, we sell it at the at the at the shop. Uh, Carl actually. Uh, has come in the store a few times. Nice. And we see him at the trade shows pretty much every time, too, because he's got his own cigar line. We, we first cool. bumped into him in the Dominican Republic like three or four years ago. So did you go find like the farmers or the, the areas that roll your cigars? Did yeah. you research that? <clears throat> yeah. And that's so, a good tax write-off. 
So yeah, well, yeah, free vacation to the Caribbean. Well, not free, but a write-off vacation anyway. Um, yeah, I've been to Nicaragua and seen the farms there where the tobacco's grown, the factories there, and then I've been to the Dominican Republic and seen the same thing. And like wine, you know, where the tobacco is grown has an impact on what the what the tobacco qualities are going to be, what it tastes like, what it smells like. Um, and so the tobaccos in Nicaragua are, tend to be really rich and full-bodied and strong. And then the tobaccos in the Dominican tend to be a little bit more lighter and more floral and maybe a little bit more sweet. And you can combine the different tobaccos uh, to make a cigar that has a unique kind of flavor profile characteristics. And so for the store, we have our own cigar line, our, our house cigar line. Uh, they're made in the Dominican Republic. Um, uh, it's a store exclusive, so we're not manufacturing them ourselves, but we, they were manufactured to our specs, essentially, which is pretty cool. That's way cool. Yeah. Nice. We'll have to take a field trip there sometime, Steve, and go check it out. Yeah. You could record a podcast down there. There we go. While you have a cigar. Is, now, I remember something about a smoke room and you had to close it for a while, or what, uh, what was that situation? Yeah, like? it's still closed. Uh, it's still closed. But, um, yeah, we had an issue where somebody was writing letters to the health department about it, and so we had to to stop letting the public back there. I mean, I still use it for my own private use, of course, but... Um, Product testing. We can't, yeah, we can't just let anyone in off the street, but uh, for a while there, we had a really, really nice lounge that customers could come and enjoy their cigar in. Yeah. You can come and check it out. It's still there, but yeah. <laughs> just can't bring all your buddies. <laughs> This is the room that we used to smoke in. <laughs> yep, this is yep, this is the room that that I smoke in all by myself sometimes. So. Uh, we'll we'll throw parties and stuff there. Anything private is okay. We just can't let the public in there. Yeah, unfortunately. That's a good idea with all things sometimes maybe. <laughs> yeah. Um, should we do bonus questions? Yeah. All right. The show's called Your Creativity, so we asked our guests, what does creativity mean to you? Creativity to me is the process of self-discovery, like uncovering parts of yourself that maybe you didn't know were there or parts of you that you've been ignoring or, you know, maybe it's a reflection that you see in someone else, but it's really, you know, you're writing a song about somebody else, but you're really writing about yourself. Uh, even if a song is about an external thing. You always have to look back at the, the writer and understand that that's from the writer's perspective. And so the song is really about the writer, you know, and his, his or her perspective. And so, yeah, that's if, if I had to sum up creativity in a nutshell, so I'd, I'd say what it is. Nice. I like that. And you can do it with any medium. You can do it with chocolate making. You can do it with cigars. You can do it with music. The visual arts, I mean, there's there's no end in the ways we can be creative and express ourselves and discover ourselves through that process. Well said. The next one's a lot funner. Um, 
you mentioned Roy Clark, and which is funny, I'm rewatching The Muppet Show on Disney Plus, and Roy Clark's was the other day. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So, um, who is your favorite Muppet and why? And this includes any Jim Henson created. Any Muppet. Jim Henson created? Yeah, so Sesame Street, Yoda, Dark right. Crystal, Labyrinth. I think Elmo. <laughs> <laughs> I like Elmo just because he's. He's innocent, happy, kind-hearted, but is kind of mischievous and loves to have fun, too. Um, I don't know. I'd hang out with Elmo, basically. Was that our first Elmo answer? I don't know, but he is kind-hearted. Yeah. So that's yeah. A good, I like Elmo. Yeah, he's, he's kind, but mischievous a little bit. Sometimes he's a little too loud and rambunctious, but he means well. and He's <laughs> self-corrective, you know, he questions himself and learns things and uh, I don't know I think Elmo's pretty cool I like it that's a good one and in the movie of your life who would you like to play you (laughs) (laughs) hmm that's a tough one probably Robert Downey Jr. yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah. whatever his accent is (laughs) I, I tried a few times to get it right, but yeah, I can't do it. Um, favorite Robert Downey Jr. role, aside from Iron Man? Uh, you're going to have to remind me of other movies that he's been in. Uh, Chaplin, um, was it Heart and Soul, where he was one of the ghosts. Um, less than Zero. Uh, I really okay. liked I really liked his Sherlock Holmes iteration. Oh yeah, Sherlock Holmes. I thought yeah. that I thought his portrayal of Sherlock Holmes was was really cool. A little different spin on it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one missed opportunity they had in Avengers is they had two Sherlocks in the same scene, and <laughs> neither one of them said "No shit, Sherlock." I never thought about that. And Tony Stark. That wouldn't be out of character for Tony to say. No, not at all. They that is a brilliant missed opportunity. It could have been in the editor's cut. Maybe. That's giving him a lot of credit, though. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just you know, throwing it out there. Devil's advocate. Come on, Rizzo Brothers. You know comedy. You did Arrested Development. Come on. <laughs> Missed opportunity. You're on notice. Oh. <laughs> that would have been good. Uh, so what's your social media handle so people can check you out and find out about the cigar store? So my music stuff is going to be... Ken, at Kendrick Zane, uh, the cigar stuff is going to be at Beehive Cigars. That's it. Very simple. Yeah. All right. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. What, what? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. No problem. Thanks for having me. The podcast is done, man. Ah, 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 ah.